So we open up to the closing portions of Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we've been going through this for several weeks. We're now to the last section. And really this parable that Christ is about to use here in verses 21 through 35 is really kind of a recap um, or an application of everything that he's talked about up to this point. So as we've been looking through this section, you know, we've been talking about the five different themes in this, in this whole chapter. First one being hierarchy, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he makes the point, number one, the only way you're getting into the kingdom of heaven is if you humble yourself as a child. So there's your starting place. You know, there's your starting place on the hierarchy. You've got to humble yourself down to as a child. That's, that's the hierarchy approach we were talking about. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the greatest servant in the kingdom of heaven. The one who is willing to lay self aside for Christ, for others, you know, in our society today that is so heavy on self, okay? I mean, Facebook is just all about self. Twitter, Instagram is all about self. You know, we're very self-conscious in this day and age. But the idea is that we are to be humble. Our humility is to drive us to a selflessness that ends up thinking of others above ourselves. That's the hierarchy component. The temptation component was the second theme, and that involved everything from how we cause offense, being tempted into stumbling, those kind of things. And we saw, again, the dire consequences that that Christ laid out there, the scary things that he put there for us, the stark warnings about how serious he was about it. Thirdly, we talked about protection, and that fell again into the category or into the, his discussion about being the shepherd that is going to go out and he's going to take care of that sheep. Even that one that you've got 99 back in the pen and you should be thankful for what you got. And Christ says, no, I'm, I'm, I want all of them. I've, after all of them, I protect all of them. They're all mine and I will ferociously defend them against offense, which is what the context is here. But also we get that beautiful shepherd picture from Christ that I am the shepherd that's not just going to let you go i'm, I'm going to kind of going to get you <laughs> you know i'm always going to take care of you i've paid for you you're mine i'm not going to let you just wander off i'll always come out and get you out of whatever mess you've gotten yourself into fourth and what we talked about last week as well as some component of the fifth was restoration and forgiveness we talked about how that those sections of scripture starting in 15 going through 20 you know we often you know erroneously use those as kind of this template of, well, this is how you're supposed to enact church discipline. And what we were trying to impress last week is that's not what Christ was doing here. Christ was not saying, okay, when you have problems in the church, this is how you handle it. One, two, three, boom, you're done. And there you go. That it's actually, it was a means by which Christ could, could, could convey to his disciples that you shouldn't be so willing to see someone go. You shouldn't be so desirous to see someone go. It wasn't a textbook case of once you've checked these three boxes, then you can feel good about yourself in letting someone go. He was saying, no, I want you to go after them. And this is how I want you to pursue them. You pursue them on your own. You pursue them with a couple others. If they want to hear you, go get the whole church. But you're trying to restore. You're trying to bring this person back. You're not looking for a means by which you can check the boxes at the end and go, okay, well, we did it the right way so we can feel good about ourselves and what we have done. 
The desire was restoration. It was to see that person saved, healed, delivered. It was not to see them go out the right way. Now, of course, there's some people who he says, you know, if they want to be an unbeliever, let them be an unbeliever. You don't have to worry about that. But, you know, the real reality of it was that his three-step process there was not a checkbox legalistic thing. It was a constant returning to the fact that he wanted to see you work as hard as he does to save that one sheep that's gone astray. Okay? Restoration. And tied in that was with forgiveness and how we should be leaving that in dealing with people that forgiveness is one of those cornerstone pieces that we can't overlook. We can't let it go. It is essential. And that's what he's going to talk a little bit more about in this next section. So then when you look at verse 21, it reads this way. Peter came to him after he said all these things. And Peter comes to him and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? And Jesus said to him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven like unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But he had not to pay. His Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had in payment to be made. And the servant, therefore, fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what thou owest. And his fellow servants fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not. But went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave them the all that your debt, or I forgave you all your debt, because you desired me or because you begged me so. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had pity on you? And his Lord was very mad and very wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he paid all that was due to him. So likewise shall my heavenly father do also to you if you from your hearts do not forgive every one his brother their trespass. Now in keeping with the dire consequences theme, he's closing this out for them with a nice flowery homily. Nice way to round it out and make everybody happy and feel warm and fuzzy when they go home. Here you have, in this last section, Christ kind of working this, uh, this whole chapter out. Okay? You have what this chapter in application should be, or I should say should not be. Okay? Christ is giving them an example, much like he did about the offender, much like he did. I mean, he's he's playing it out. But now he's like, let me just tell you a little parable. OK, I've done a lot of parables about the kingdom of heaven. Here's another parable. And what's really, really, really important for us to grab from this and grab from this chapter as a whole. This is all directed to us. OK, this entire chapter is about us. 
He's not talking about some unbelieving heathen around. He's talking to us. He's saying, you, my disciples, this is how you are to act. And this is the consequence if you don't act this way. The whole chapter. So now he's getting to the last of it and he's throwing out another one. This is how you should act. This is not optional. This is not so you could be the most fulfilled disciple. This is discipleship 101. It's like, if you don't grab this, you're, you're not a disciple, okay? This is me. This is who I am. This is how I've acted. So you must do the same. And this situation here, everything that we're seeing here, and really, he's, he's kind of using this with Peter. He's addressing Peter's question, trying to be very pointed and direct about it in, in the severity of his teaching. And remember, we've, the, the five kind of things that we've seen through this chapter are, you do not offend. Don't call us to stumble. Okay? Don't call that's been the, the, the meta narrative. That's been the whole thing is causing other disciples, followers, whoever, to stumble or lose kind of their view, lose their hope, lose their, their direction with Christ. You're not to cause them to offend, to stumble. Well, how am I going to do that? Well, one of them is by anger and wrath and and pride and and offensing and all these things and not being forgiving, not being merciful. All these things would be ways in which you can yourself stumble and also cause others to stumble. But do not offend, be humble, show compassion, be merciful and be forgiving. I mean, those are kind of the five themes that have been recurring with this. But the pretext for this parable was Peter's question. Lord, how often am I going to have to do this? How often am I to forgive him? You just gave me that three-step step scenario. I thought you meant I only had to fulfill those three steps. And if I fulfilled those three steps, then legalistically, I can check it off and say I'm good. So how many times do I really have to do this, Lord? How often do I have to forgive him? What is it seven times? Is that the magic number? And then I can finally move past this and just be like, I'm done with you. I can act however I want. Where's the marker? And you can pick up with Peter's comments, his continued kind of, he struggled, all right, with kind of legalism and human nature all the way up until really Acts chapter 2, and you still had some stuff after that. But he struggled with this kind of legalistic human nature thing from his background. Because, see, the legalist will say this. How many times do I have to, quote, keep the law to be called a... Keeper of the law and to be declared righteous. How many times do I have to do it? How many commandments do I have to keep to be declared righteous? How many good works do I have to do to be declared righteous? Or like he's been asked before, who is my neighbor? Give me the specifics so I can know exactly who I have to be congenial to. And more importantly, who I do not have to be congenial to. Give me the legalistic route. Give me, the, give me the, the metrics so that I can check them off. And at the end of the day, I can close my book and go, but look at what a good person I am. I've done that. I did that. I checked those boxes. Now look at me. How can you say that I'm not a righteous person? So how many times, Lord? Give me those seven times. Is that seven times? Okay, I forgive you seven times, and after that, gloves are off. I can do however I want to. But if I can forgive you seven times in a row, then I will have achieved my legalistic status, and I can declare, declare myself righteous. Whereas kind of the human nature side of it says, why would I ever forgive someone one time, let alone 490? Why would I ever forgive someone one time? What's in it for me? 
If I forgive somebody one, two, three, you know, 490 times, what are they going to do for me? That's kind of the human nature side to it. What's in it for me? Why am I even doing this? What's the point? So you can kind of see with Peter, both of those, you see the legalism and the human nature. Why am I doing this, Lord? How many times do I have to do it? What's the point in doing it? You're giving me these teachings and I'm just not, I'm not a hundred percent sold on it. I mean, you can kind of get, Peter is trying to get a definition or kind of an encapsulation of all these marvelous things that Jesus has been teaching because they're so over the top, okay? These like, this warrantless, you know, forgiveness, this, you know, limitless compassion and mercy, and there's no like, there's no like places where I can get out of that. You mean I have to do that? You can kind of get at how big these teachings are by Christ about non-offense, about mercy, humility, compassion, and forgiveness because Peter is struggling to grasp them. Even Peter was not... I mean, this isn't like on the, on, you know, the Beatitudes. They're not like, oh, man, that's great stuff. Keep it up, Jesus. That sounds amazing. These are things like, seriously? Like, how far do we have to go with this? How far is this reaching? How many times do we do this, Lord? Like, where, where, where are some boundaries on this? Because I don't know if I can do this. So what Jesus is teaching here is pretty over the top. I mean, this is where he's got his disciples together going, no, guys, see, this is what it means to be my disciple. You're running around here thinking it's like casting out demons and thinking that's all cool. I'm telling you, this is what it means to be my disciple. Yeah, you have power. Don't get too haughty about that. You can see how power can bring you all the way up from being on the mountain of the Lord to being thrown down like lightning to the ground. I mean, power in and of itself is nothing. What you are to be as my disciples is a people of or are a people of compassion, mercy, humility, and forgiveness. He says, this is what it means. If you want to know, if you want to know what it looks like, if you want to grab what it looks like, this is what it means looks like so he says so here you go peter let me tell you a story let me give you a parable let me tell you this parable of this forgiving lord and the unforgiving servant now again there's you know obviously you can draw parallels and you can say things oh like the forgiving lord is god and he forgave us his servants and there is kind of a loose connection with that i really try to get you not to really dig too deep into the personal spiritual lives of any of the characters in this other than you can see by their reactions kind of the things that are going on with them okay but the reactions are really what we're really being told to look at okay that's what he's trying to bring out from this and in this parable he does sum up all the characteristics he's been talking about compassion forgiveness, and in some cases, the lack thereof. So first we have a servant who owes the master this large sum, this 10,000 talents, just to say it's $10 million, okay? He owes him $10 million, and that's the price tag. The master says, all right, collection time, it's time to be due. The servant says, I ain't got it, okay? And the master says, that's okay, I'll just take you and all your family, I'll sell you all into slavery, I'll get my money. And then the servant begs the master, please just give me some time. And the words that it uses there, it says that the master was moved with compassion on the servant and forgave his debts. Now, again, what's what's so amazing about that is it wasn't just a merciful thing like, okay, hey, that's fine. You know what? You pay me when you can. 
In fact, let me cut it in half. You only owe me half. And tell me, what's in your pockets right now? You got 10 bucks? All right, that's fine. I'll take 10 bucks and we'll call it square. You got a couple of cows? I'll take that. We'll call it square. You don't have to worry about the rest of it. We're even, Stephen. Don't worry about it. We're good. No, the master forgave his debt, all of it. Didn't have to do that. It was a large sum of money. He just gave that up and said, you know what? I have compassion on you and this means... It's done. Don't worry about it. Take off. Okay. Now, what I think is amazing by that is then we look and we go, what what would be the natural response? Okay. Now, you would think, I mean, even just out here in the world, you have situations where people have had, you know, things happen like a firefighter saved them from whatever, a ditch or something like that. And people have kind of this natural, even very natural compulsion to give something back, right? Okay, well, I have received this, so I feel like I need to give back to society or whatever it may be. You know, sometimes you have uh, like reformed people coming out of prison who feel like they have they owe this debt to society that they need to give back. I mean, there's a very just a natural thing of if you have been given a lot and it's not by anything you've done, it's some kind of miraculous thing, you know, there even is just this natural response of, look, I have received this big gracious thing to me. So I'm going to give it back in some way. So you would assume that this servant, being so overwhelmed by this act of mercy, that he would, you know, change his life, do something, live differently, be more gracious, be more forgiving. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened with him. He took the graciousness, the mercy, the forgiveness that the master gave him... And then he went right around. He went to his servant who owed him like $2 compared to the $10 million, okay? And said, give me my money. Man said, same, almost same words. Please, if you'll just give me more time, I'll pay you back. And this forgiven servant says, no, I don't think so. Takes him by the throat, throws him in prison. Says, you can come out whenever you pay all your money back. Completely different response, right? And it's important for us, while we're reading through this parable, to take note of the unforgiving servant, okay? Because Jesus is using this example of the unforgiving servant, not the forgiving master, okay? He's using the example of the unforgiving servant as a cautionary tale for us. Okay, that's the whole point of this. It's not to look at it as some great... You know, parable about grace and look how the father forgives the children. No, it's a cautionary tale to us. Look at the actions of the forgiven servant. Okay. That's why I say this goes all back to us. This whole chapter is about us. He's trying to correct his disciples saying, guys, you better get on page because this is a cautionary tale. Look at this parable real quick. Listen to this parable real quick. See what happens to the unforgiving servant who has been forgiven much. Look at what happens to him. So what happened next is the scary part. After he refused to be a forgiving servant himself or a forgiving Lord in that way. I mean, and again, it's not that he just didn't forgive. You'd say, oh, well, I mean, maybe he's poor. And I mean, you can't just expect him to forgive that. I mean, the rich master, maybe he can, you know, lose two million and not worry about it. Maybe these two denarii or whatever it is, this is all this guy has. He needs that. He could have at least showed mercy. 
He could have at least said, hey, buddy, it's okay. Next week, next month, next year, pay me what you got. Pay me a little, pay a little on it. Don't worry about it. We'll get it when we get it. But it's going to be okay. But that's not how he acted. Instead, he refused. He refused to show any kind of compassion, any kind of mercy, any kind of forgiveness. And demanded what he wanted and had the guy thrown in prison. Now, when this gets back to the original master, when that guy hears about it, he grabs this forgiven servant, this ungrateful forgiven servant, this unchanged forgiven servant, drags him back and forth and says, well, you know what, buddy? I guess you don't appreciate my grace so much and removes the forgiveness he had originally given and throws him in jail and actually uses the phrases there. You know, the first guy was thrown in prison. This guy was thrown to the tormentors. Completely kind of different reversal there. Now, the closing of this parable leaves us another one with, with another one of those scary, fear-invoking warnings that he's been given this entire chapter. And he says, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also to you if you from your hearts do not forgive every trespass of your brother. Or every brother that trespasses against you. So likewise will he do this unto you. Now that is pretty doggone terrifying. It should be. It should be. And this is directed at us. Again, Christ has taught this whole chapter that there are serious consequences for not heeding his warning about offenses. He's made it like the cornerstone of this entire chapter. He said, this is what it's all about. And this is what will happen. And this is what you can expect. Humble yourself or don't enter the kingdom. Take heed to being offensive or else face a punishment worse than being, worse than being thrown in the sea and drowned. Take heed to being an offender or face hellfire, as he describes it. Don't be scornful or face the angels of the Father. I mean, that's... This is all what he's been going through the whole chapter. And here he says, forgiveness, the forgiveness you've been so graciously given must be reciprocated. Or, if not, fear the retribution of the Father. Now, in kind of similar fashion or, or giving kind of a... I guess you could say a real world example. If you talk about that being a parable, the real world example we do see in the gospel, Luke chapter 17, when Jesus is going out, you have the, the story or the account of the 10 lepers. Now, again, it doesn't get as dark. It's actually the opposite side of this, I guess you could say. But you get an example of what Christ is talking about here and what he's trying to reiterate to his disciples. In Luke chapter 17, starting with verse 11 through 19, he says that it came to pass when he went to Jerusalem, he passed through Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there he met ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourself to the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them... When he saw, just one, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and ran and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And guess what? This guy was a Samaritan, not even a Jew. And Jesus answering said, were there not ten cleansed, but where are the other nine? 
there are not found that return to give glory to God except this stranger. And he said to him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Now again, we talk, we've talked about this before, and really in context, the context of this section of Scripture, the proper context, is the proper response to forgiveness and healing, but it carries with it a greater implication of obedience and blessings. You look at how this has played out. Everyone was healed. Everyone was healed at that moment. All of them were. All of them received that blessing. But there was only one who was moved by faith to come back and give the proper praise, honor, and respect due to the one who saved him. Only one out of them. And notice how he says, your faith has made you whole. Well, what are you talking about, Jesus? Because he's already healed. But you see the nine lepers who took the gift and ran with it. And really, they would be comparable to that forgiven servant in the parable that we just talked about. They would be comparable to the servant in the parable, okay, that we just talked about earlier. No change, no life redirection, no indication they would live life any more forgiving than before. They took the blessing and ran. Thanks, Jesus. Deuces. See you later. Kind of like we've been talking about with Numbers and Leviticus, you know. Hey, thanks for getting us out of Egypt. Thanks for delivering us from slavery. Really appreciate that. Don't like the bread. Don't like the food. Don't like the water. Don't like the trip. Don't like the boss. Don't like the captain. Give us another person to take us back to Egypt. (coughs) Take the grace and run with it. There was that one leper, though, who through faith returned to his Savior, bowed down, And worshipped him for his abundant mercy. Change, compassion, mercy, healing, faith, forgiveness. And you say, well, you don't know how he lived the rest of his life. No, but I can probably tell you that it was not the same way as he did before. I mean, this is almost like the, the Gadarene man who was healed from the legion of demons. I know how he lived the rest of his life. You say, well, you don't get a testimony of it. I know, though. <laughs> I just know how he, I know how he lived. Jesus said, man, go back and tell your family. And you know what? I bet you I could put all my money on it. That's how he went and lived. He'd been changed by the grace of God and he lived it out. One of the greatest pitfalls and one that I fear we are so prone to be a part of is to think that we know all there is to know about grace and to be no more gracious than an unbeliever. Okay? To know all that we know, to think we know all there is to know about grace and to be no more gracious than an unbeliever. Because, I mean, we talk about it all the time. We sing amazing grace. In fact, sometimes you'll hear people when they're preaching talk about, well, we know what real grace is. Like, we know that you can talk about people about grace, but then once you start getting their definition, you realize it's really not grace. And we just, we think we got this all figured out. We know all about it. We've got the context and we got all the scriptures and stuff like that. But on so many occasions, we show a lack of grace in our lives. And what I would challenge is, is that just because we think we know grace the right way, hasn't affected us. Know all about it all you want to. It's worthless. Know all about it. Argue all about it. Let me tell you how you can explain Ephesians 2 better than anybody else and how you can tell me all about grace. If your life is not more gracious, you don't know grace. 
You can say you do all you want to. You can be right denomination, right church, right everything. You don't know grace. You don't know Jesus. You don't know what he really taught. Because what Jesus teaches us here is that the grace and the mercy and the compassion should be reflected in our lives. That that should actually testify how much we really know about it. You say, oh, well, I believe in him. I'm a follower. I'm a disciple. Not if you're not acting like this. This is what his disciples act like. That's what he's been telling his disciples here. He's like, you can even have all the showy stuff. You can have all the gifts or you could have all the right words or the right lineage or the right whatever. And what I'm going to tell you is, is he's saying, but that doesn't matter. What matters is, are you actually doing this stuff that I did? Are you living a life like this? He said, because let me get, tell you what, even you who would claim to be my disciples, if you end up being an offender, this is what you can look forward to. You want to be unforgiving because you think you have some kind of justification for it? Well, let me just tell you, my disciples forgive. And if you're not willing to do that, then fear the retribution of the father. You want to be offended or be an offender? You want to offend for whatever it is? You know, Peter and Paul and all of them will talk about being offenders for bread and offenders for meat and offenders for drink and offenders for all these other things. If that's how you want to be, you want to throw some stumbling blocks, you want to cause some problems, you're going to face the angels of my father. You're going to face my wrath, my retribution. You'd be better off if you drowned yourself in the sea. I mean, that's how he's gone the whole chapter with this. And he sums it up with that parable. Is this you? <laughs> is this you? Are you the one who's drinking in the grace of my father? Are you the one that's drinking in the grace and the mercy and the compassion and the forgiveness of my father? And then going out and your life is no more different than it was beforehand. Then I'm going to tell you we're going to have some problems. So this chapter is a deep, deep chapter on the core values of Jesus's disciples. That's why we spent like five weeks on it. You can't just breeze through this. This isn't a quick little neat little, hey, this is how you deal with, you know, unity in the church or whatever. No, these are things all pointed back at his disciples to say, this is how your daily life is supposed to be, chief. Christ has been digging and digging and digging into these values. And I think it's interesting. This is like, and again, I know that this, this book was not broken up into chapters and it was not done this way. And Matthew's longer than Mark and there's... You know, obviously, there's not a middle ground, so to speak, in Christ's testimony. But chapter 18 falls in the middle almost. It's in the middle of his life, middle of his ministry, middle of everything. The next few chapters going forward, we're going to start moving downhill. We're going to start getting into Jerusalem. We're going to start getting into sacrifice and death and crucifixion and all this stuff. This is right in the middle. And it's almost like you can sense at this moment when these disciples, after they have already been with him up until this point, start dropping questions that are like, where have you been the last few years? What have you learned? Have you not been listening? Why are you asking these questions about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Where did you even get that that was going to be a thing? Why are you asking how many times you can forgive? When did I say, when have I ever put a precept on my, on my, on, on my things, the things that I've told you to do? When have I ever said, do it for this long, but then you're off the hook? Love your neighbor, but only this neighbor. That's what you've heard said. I have come in and told you that's not how it is. I've come in and told you over and over again. It's not some legalistic love who I say you love and you don't have to love anybody else. And in fact, it's love everybody, friends, enemies, neighbors, whatever it may be. Why do you think, Peter, at this point, after you've been running around with me, that I would tell you, oh, yeah, seven's good. That's all you need. 
Feel good about yourself after that. You've forgiven yourself seven times. Feel good about yourself. You know, not going to count the billions of times that I've had to forgive you, Peter. But yeah, with you seven times good and then you're off the hook. Why do you think, Peter, I would ever say that? So you can get almost this chapter is like a, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where y'all need to get on the same page. This is how serious I am about this. This is what it means to be a disciple. So over and over again, he gives the framework for everything it means to be a Christian. Humility, compassion, mercy, and forgiveness. And he also warns them starkly about not embodying these things. Five different times he warns, warns them about what's going to happen if they don't. So, I mean, and these were scary consequences. If you want a chapter to read through to get a true good view of a fear of God, this is a good chapter to read through for that purpose, okay? So these, these, this chapter is not light. It's not something that you breeze through. It's not something you go, oh, yeah, chapter 18, that's how we know to deal with offended brethren. Let's move on. Let's get to a different chapter. That's, this chapter has weight and gravitas that is essential for us. And really, what I feel like this chapter is, is like the, the pinnacle of everything that I have been trying to talk about for the last two years. Okay? The whole reason why we started this was because of this chapter. The whole reason why we started this was because I feel in today's time that the word Christian out there comes with so many connotations with it about what you actually believe that we have to reorient as to what Christ actually taught. And that's what Christ is having to do with here with his disciples. He's saying, guys, let's bring this back home as to what I've actually been telling you. It's not about your miraculous gifts. It's about compassion. It's not about how you can have the right argument. It's how you cannot offend. It's not about being right and always right and knowing you're right and shoving it in somebody's face that you're right. It's actually learning how you can be compassionate, merciful, lean where you need to lean, and forgive where you need to forgive. So what do we take away from these teachings? What does it mean to be a Christian? How does a Christian act? think the verses that have reverberated in my head the entire chapter that we'll use as a close comes from Micah. And this is some 400 years before, you know, roundabout, before Matthew's ever been written, okay? So we're not talking about this is some new age Jesus philosophy. This has been the story the whole time. You know, we've been going back through this over and over again. We talk about this Old Testament, New Testament thing. And what I have tried to tell us is we've been studying on Wednesday nights and on Sunday mornings. It's one testament. It's one testimony. The whole thing's one story telling the story of God and Jesus Christ. It's one story. And he's had one theme, one message, one direction the entire time. So we'll close with with Micah's words. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself down before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy And to walk humbly with thy God. Those three characteristics there. Justice, mercy, and humility. That's been all chapter 18. 
You can't enter into the kingdom of heaven if you do not humble yourself. And then when you're in the kingdom of heaven and serving the kingdom of heaven, what is your main goal? To be just in everything that you do. That means you're not offending. You're not being an offender. You're practicing the justice of the Lord, which encompasses something greater than just the idea of right and wrong. And you got the right punishment for the right problem. That's not what that justice means. But more than that is to love, love, love mercy. I think that's so important. That is what that's, that, that is what defines, as we talked about last time, the mercy and compassion aspect is what defines us as Christians. When you go out there in the world and you look at how we act and what we should be doing and shouldn't do, and you look at how the world perceives us, the one thing that just sets us apart from everything is not the fact that we believe in a God incarnate, which is also important. Not that we believe that we in a Trinitarian God, which is also important. Not that we believe in, you know, all of these things that we hold to be these high theological principles. What always blew people away was the insane mercy and compassion that Christians have always had. Just strangers and people they've never even known and, and giving their lives for things they never even... You know, I mean, that has always marked us. And I feel that over the last few centuries that has slipped away. But that's not what marks us anymore. We've gotten so marked by names and categories and denominations and not by what Christ actually taught us is who we are. So it's important for us to grab those verses from Micah and use them as... Kind of the guides for our life. God has showed us what he desires. That we should live justly. That we should love mercy. And that we should walk humbly before our Lord. So may God bless us to do that.